You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. For most outstanding volunteer for the year 2013 and 2014. Additionally, the Little White House earned a Georgia State Parks Award for the most innovative special program at a historic site in 1996 and 2010 for Carol's Rosie the Riveter performance. In March of 2016, the Philadelphia Women Chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution presented Carol with the Women in American History Award. Carol is a Rosebud affiliate of the American Rosie River Association, joining to honor her grandmother. Well, mother girls, the tender favorite cocktail. Oh, wait a minute, Carol. <laughs> Dip and dry martini, munching caviar. There's a girl who's really putting them to shame. Rosie is her name. All the day long, when the rain or shine, she's a part of the assembly line. She's making history, working yeah, for you. victory. Rosie, <laughs> the keeps a sharp lookout for sabotage. Sitting up there on the fuselage, that little frail can do more than a male can do. Did you hear any of my song? Yes, we did. <laughs> well, good morning. I'm sorry for that rough start. Okay, very good. Let me hear your Rosie the Riverfield uh, song again. Well, all right. I'm happy to do that. This is how I start every Rosie show, so I'm going to start again with us. While other girls attend their favorite cocktail bar. Dippin' dry martinis, munching caviar. There's a girl who's really putting them to shame. Rosie is her name. All the day long, wet the rain or shine. She's a part of the assembly line. She's making history, working for victory. Rosie, <laughs> the riveter. Keeps a sharp foot out for sabotage. Sitting up there on the fuselage. That little frail can do more than a male can do. Rosie. <laughs> the Riveter. Rosie's got a boyfriend, Charlie. Charlie, he's a Marine. Rosie is protecting Charlie. Working overtime on the riveting machine. When they gave her a production E, she was as proud as a girl could be. There's something true about red, white, and blue about Rosie. <laughs> the Riveter. <laughs> I've heard that song so many times, it still thrills me, Cheryl. Well, I'm glad you asked. And honestly, there are a lot of people that don't know about Rosie, despite the fact that you can see the Rosie icon in a number of places now. But Rosie is just the nickname that was given to the millions of women who joined the American labor force during World War II. And um, 
you know, everybody thinks, well, it has to be a riveter. Well, that's not true. Women, women took tons of jobs, millions of jobs. And jobs doing things they've never had a chance at doing before, like being lumberjacks or being um, truck drivers or driving tractors or buses or locomotives. They were um, assembling airplanes and ships. They were uh, making bomb sites. They were building jeeps. So there were quite a few jobs, and we just give them that nickname, Rosie the Riveter. But it really... Um, is the iconic figure to represent all women who went to work during World War II. And that might have been women who were leaving jobs as maids or cooks to go work in defense plants or young women who were working for the first time, housewives who were finally working for a wage. sort of covers all of those women. And um, it's it's an enduring nickname. It's an enduring legacy. Certainly something very special to me. Have done your well, yeah, I'd love to tell you the fun story of how I got to be Rosie. Um, I was teaching high school English in Troop County, Georgia, that's um, LaGrange, Georgia. I was in my classroom after school one day in the fall of 1993, um, minding my own business, and um, my door, classroom door opened, and in walked Clark Johnson, who was um, a history teacher at Troop High at the time, and he's also a local historian and very involved with the Troop County Archives. And he walked in, and I tell you, Pete, he pointed at me just like Uncle Sam. He put his finger out, and he said, I need you. And I said, what do you need me to do? And he said, well, our local archives is planning a 50th anniversary celebration of the end of World War II. And it's going to begin in 1994 and run through 95. And he said, we're organizing programs to cover many different aspects of the war. And we thought about you. And I said, uh, okay, why? <laughs> you know, uh, I knew some World War II history, but I didn't know why he thought I could do a program. And he laughed and he said, well, you've got brown hair, you're a storyteller and an actress, and we thought you might make a great Rosie the Riveter. And I said, who? And he just laughed. And, um, and honestly, I wasn't quite that naive, but I really didn't know the Roy, the Rosie story that well. And he promised to bring me some books, and he checked them out from our school library. He brought them to me the next day, put them down in front of me, and he said, look at these and see what you think. And I opened that first book, and I started reading Rosie's stories, and I was hooked. I walked right back down to his classroom. I said, okay, I'm in. I'll do it. And so I planned a program thinking it was a one-time-only event that I would, um, you know, do this show the one time, and that would be good. And um, I did the show for the arc for the archives and for their audience. And um, the little White House folks found all about it, found out about it, and said, "Can you come here?" And I said, "I'd love to." And um, I went to the little White House in 1994, and I have been going every year since, up until this year. <laughs> wow! Okay. 
I, I tell you what, Cheryl, we have to go to our first break and apologize I for all the so. audio problems. We're going to our first break and we'll be right back with Carol Kane's Rosie Derivative. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. So, um, I'm just going to start telling about it. <laughs> when uh, I had performed at the Little White House um, the very first year, it was exciting. It was fun. I was at the old museum. I don't know how many of your guests have been to the old museum at the Little White House. But um, I performed there, and um, they actually asked if they could bring a Rosie to meet me. And I was thrilled by that because I, I'd been telling the story a few times now, and I really wanted to meet real riveters. And so the um, woman that I met was a cute little lady from Greenville, Georgia, who told me because of her small stature, she could um, climb into the noses of airplanes. And so she was given the job of repairing um, damaged aircraft and that she made $1,100 a year but she fell in love with her boss who was making 2200 a year. So she quit her job and married him. The next year, the White House said, we're going to invite more women to join you and tell their stories. And I thought, this will be great. So um, more women came to the Little White House um, in 96 and also in 97. And they were riveters. They were crane operators. I mean, these ladies had done a variety of jobs. And it was so exciting to them that I was telling their story, but I was more thrilled to be meeting them and hearing their stories in person. And so this group of women, um, and I love, I love to call them the founding mothers, they uh, came together and decided to form the American Rosie the Riveter Association. And um, the founding mother, so to speak, is um, Dr. Fran Carter, who lives in Birmingham, Alabama. She worked for Betchel McComb. And then another one of the founding mothers, and a, a woman that I got to know very well, is um, Elizabeth Minton from Pine Mountain Valley. And Elizabeth had worked for Doak's Aircraft. And those two ladies, you know, encouraged me to join them for the founding meeting of the American Rosie the Riveter Association, which was held on December 7th, 1998. And they were very quick to tell me that as much as they appreciated my story, that they would much rather I join their organization because of a rosy connection. And at that time, the membership was really for women who had been um, in the workforce during World War II or had done regular volunteer work throughout the war. And so this encouraged me to go home and talk to my grandmother. And I said, Ma, what did you do during World War II? And she said, well, if you're asking me if I was a riveter, the answer is no. But your grandfather was. And I didn't know that piece of information. She said, that stool you've sat on in my, on your, in my kitchen all your life was made with scrap metal from Bell Aircraft, which is what is Lockheed now in Atlanta. 
And I had no idea. I had never heard that story. And I was embarrassed that I didn't know that story. But I pushed my grandmother a little bit more, and she told me that every Wednesday she rolled bandages with the for the Red Cross with her church circle group. And in doing that, that regular volunteer work qualified my grandmother to become a member of the American Rosie the Riveter Association, and that meant I could join as a rosebud. Now, Pete, if you joined, you'd have to be a rivet. The guys are rivets, the girls are rosebuds. But I um, joined the organization uh, to honor my grandmother and then started just a wonderful alliance with these ladies and have um, continued to work with them. I've attended their um, conventions. Um, they have supported me. They have, um, you know, encouraged me to continue the stories that I'm telling. But then they gave me a job, a real job. So now I am the grant chairperson for the American Rosie the Riveter Association. And that's an opportunity for um, students um, from 6th grade through 12th grade to apply to receive a small financial stipend to help them do a project about Rosie the Riveter. So I have to work now for the Riveting Association, but I love it. <laughs> I love those ladies. And of course, as you know, they're, you know, they're, they're getting on in age. And so it's been very important for them that they have an outlet for telling their stories. And so once they formed their organization very quickly, they began to put together story collections. And they've now done six books of Rosie's stories. And I'm so excited about that. And, um, the last, the last edition, I was able to write a story about my grandmother and my grandfather and me to put in that book. You are, you mentioned a crane operator. Uh, yeah. Let's, let's do Frankie Cooper. Tell me about Frankie Cooper. I'd happily tell you about Frankie Cooper. So this is one of the stories that I researched for my original program. And Frankie Cooper was a crane operator. So I'm going to tell you her story in her words. During the war, the morale inside our plants was extremely high. Not just myself, but everybody gave everything they had. They wanted to do it. Today, you don't sit around and talk about patriotism while you're drinking a beer. But back then, you did. We were all pulling together for one great war effort. I was never absent on my job, and I wasn't unique in that. There was very little absenteeism where I worked. If I woke up in the morning and I didn't feel too good, I really didn't want to work, I could make myself go by thinking, what about those boys who are getting up at 5 o'clock? Maybe haven't even been to bed. Maybe they're leaning their chin on a bayonet just to stay awake on watch. I don't even know their names. They don't even have faces to me. But they're out there somewhere overseas. And here I am saying I don't feel like going to work today because I got a headache. <laughs> that would get me out of bed and into work every time. I'm Frankie Cooper, a proud crane operator. <laughs> I have heard that one so many times, and I love it. I absolutely love it. I do, too. And if you were seeing this in person, dear radio audience, I'd be holding a big beer mug, 
And I'd also be saluting because I love that Frankie acknowledges that she doesn't know these boys, but she knows they're out there and she's doing her job. And that's how I feel. I feel real passionate about that. And I, I love Frankie's character. Okay. Uh, where did you find all these rosy stories? Well, that's a good question. Um, when Clark brought me um, that those first books, um, he brought me about four or five books from the library. And once I started researching, it was kind of interesting. I kept finding the same stories in different places. And I, I think they were based on interviews that um, the University of Southern California had done many, many, many years ago with, um, with Rosie. But um, that particular story comes from a book called The Homefront, America During World War II by Mark Jonathan Harris, Franklin D. Mitchell, and Stephen J. Schechter. But I also found stories in a book called The Homefront, The Oral History of the War Years in America by Archie Satterfield. And then a lovely little children's book that's called Rosie the Riveter by Penny Coleman. And so... Originally, you know, I found the stories in books, but then the the good thing was I kept meeting real women who were telling me their stories. And so that's been an incredible part of my job now is to really be a vessel for holding their stories. That's that's fascinating, Cheryl. Uh, Are you still doing this? How long are you going to keep this up? (laughs) That's a great question. I once got asked that. Um, this gentleman um, and his wife who had attended um, a session I did said, how long will you keep being Rosie the Riveter? And I just joked and said, well, as long as I can lift my fist and make the Rosie pose. And I thought he was just, you know, asking me that out of curiosity. And he said, well, I want to give you something. And so I went, okay. And the next day we met and he handed me an envelope and in it, was his great aunt's patch from Bell Aircraft. And he said, we had this tucked in a drawer, but we thought if you could put this on your your uniform, my my coveralls that I wear for my costume, if you could put this on your coveralls, then my aunt's story can live on. And we just wanted to make sure you were still going to continue this work. And I went, absolutely. And so... um, you know, now I, I just keep going. I, I probably have been playing Rosie longer than many women worked as Rosie. Um, so, again, the answer is as long as I can keep lifting that fist and telling the story, I'm going to keep doing it. Real quickly, Oh, well, that's interesting. Um, and I'm just going to tell them to get in touch with you because you know how. <laughs> um, I, and, and I did, and here's what's funny to answer the question before. I did, I have done several Zoom performances while I've been home through COVID. But really, um, they can go to my website, which is um, www.storytellercarolkane.net. Thank you.
still okay? Yeah. You, when you start talking to them, I lose you, and my my heart starts shaking. <laughs> but it's okay. <laughs> Could you hear my phone ringing? I was so sorry that happened. Yeah. Uh, okay, good. I'm still getting a lot of stuff. I even went outside. And, and yeah. I don't know what's wrong. Mm-hmm. But uh, we'll solve it. We are in a great okay. spot right this very minute, so don't move. Okay. <laughs> well, if you hear David before I do, just say, uh, hey, Pete, let me do another uh, performance, okay? Okay. Do you have one in particular? Yeah. Do you have a favorite you want to do? Uh, well, I can start off with the first one who, who talks about what she wore. Oh, Is that okay? Repeat, repeat that. I'll tell, I can talk, do the first one, Winona Espinosa, who talks about what she wore. So, uh, Carol, you, Carol, you got the, uh, picture yeah. from the gentleman. Did you, uh, put it on your, your costume? I did. Good. I have some marvelous treasures now, so maybe Pete can ask me about that. Well, I don't know what Pete's doing for sure, um, other than uh, I keep hearing him messing with his phone, and uh, I sent him a... to find a good spot. Well, you know, it's not a mess. <laughs> I got you, Carol. You ready? I am. All right. All right. We're back with Carol Kane. Rosie the Riveter, great friend, great performer. Rosie, uh, tell me about why, Noah. I'd love to tell you about Winona Espinosa. Um, I just mentioned to you that I had um, been given this lovely patch. And so, yes, the answer is that I put the patch on the back of my coveralls, which ironically were my brother's uh, uh, work coveralls. And now I've had them for 26 years, and he hasn't had them back all that time. So I proudly wear the coveralls. But I'd love to tell you the story of Winona Espinosa because she talks about how Rosies were dressed. And so Winona was a riveter and a bus driver, and these are her words. In July of 1942, I left Grand Junction, Colorado, where I grew up, and I came to San Diego with my brother-in-law and my sister. I was 19, and my boyfriend had joined the Army and was in Washington State. In my mind, San Diego sounded closer to Washington than Colorado. And I thought they'd make it easier for us to see each other. I also wanted to do something to help the country get the war over with, and I knew there were a lot of defense jobs in San Diego. I applied for a job at Roar Aircraft, and they sent me to a six-week training school. You learned how to use an electric drill, how to do precision drilling, how to rivet. Now, I hadn't seen anything like a rivet gun or an electric drill motor before except in Buck Rogers' funny book. But I was an eager learner, and I soon became an outstanding riveter. At Roar, I worked riveting the boom doors on P-38s. They were big, long, huge doors that had three or four thicknesses of skin, and you had to rivet all those skins together. Everything had to be precise, and it all had to pass inspection. Each rivet had to be countersunk by hand, so you had to be very good. I found the work very challenging, but I hated the dress. 
we had to wear ugly-looking hairnets that made the girls look awful. And the female guards were very strict about them, too. Maybe you'd try to leave your bangs sticking out, because they'd come and make you stick them back in. And then you had to wear pants. We called them slacks in those days, and you never wore them prior to the, prior to the war. Finally, all the women had to wear those ugly scarves. Well, I worked at Roar for almost a year, then got married. Later, I went to work for the San Diego Transit Department driving buses and streetcars. I just saw a sign on a bus downtown one day that said, I need you. So I went in and applied. I hadn't even been driving very long, and I didn't know anything about driving a big vehicle like that. But the war really created opportunities for women. It was the first time we got a chance to show we could do a lot of things that only men had done before. I was driving a bus that day, the day the war ended. I let everybody ride free that day. I'm Winona Espinoza, riveter and bus driver. <laughs> Outstanding. Uh, Carol, you've been a lot of places with your show. Tell us a little about a little bit about where you have been with your character and what's your next destination? Well, the fun thing is that Rosie the Riveter has taken me to some places I would never have been, and that includes Zoom conferences uh, right from my dining room. But the furthest <laughs> I have traveled um, was actually quite a number of years back, I believe 2007. I went to Nevada, to Reno, Nevada, to perform for the Women's Auxiliary of the American Legion. And they were having their annual conference in conjunction with the um, uh, the American Legion's conference. And so I was the guest entertainer for the women. And every day I came out and opened their convention by being Rosie. And then I would spend the day at their booth um, posing for Rosie pictures. And I did that for, I think, four or five days, and all of a sudden, I realized I had this horrible backache, and I thought, wow, what's wrong with my back? And I realized it was because I kept striking the rosy pose for days and days and days. So uh, that was a fun trip to go to Reno. I've also performed in Ohio and Alabama and North Carolina, uh, Tennessee, and of course, right here in my home state of Georgia. So I've gone to churches and museums and schools and um, lots and lots of meetings, of some veterans rallies. Um, in fact, I was to be at um, uh, Camp Currahy this summer, or yeah, this summer, for their World War II days, and uh, that was one of those events that unfortunately had to be canceled, so I'll be there next year. Um, I've performed at... Uh, on trains, <laughs> in <laughs> trucks, you name it. I've, I've, I've performed on a bus once. That's probably the most interesting one that I've done. But <laughs> uh, I'm, I just love to tell the story, and I'm, I'm delighted when people invite me to come and, and share it. Well, I know that uh, you and I have been together at General Ray Davis Middle School several times. Yeah. That was fun. Well, it's always 
it's always great for me to tell this story to younger generation. And the thing is, Pete, um, they they now see the Rosie the Riveter um, uh, icon, the the figure, a lot, but they don't always know the story behind it. And a lot of times I've even told that people uh, people say, "Oh, my child dressed like Rosie for Halloween." And I go, well, does she know who she was? Because she doesn't need to be dressing like that if she doesn't know who Rosie the Riveter is and was. And so I'm very quick to educate if I get the opportunity. But, you know, I'll go to school where they they might have seen the poster. But then I'll turn right around and go to a senior living home. And they are living the story. I mean, they lived it. They were Rosie's. Um, or, you know, they'll tell me, um, my, my mother was, or, um, uh, I can remember, you know, the, the war years and this is what I did. And so that's the fun for me is the, the variety of audiences and how I get to react or how I get to educate or how I get to share depending on how much they know the story. Yeah. I, I know that you enjoy performing for the children. Uh, those little school kids absolutely loved your performance. Um, Thank you. Thanks for hooking us they up. Did. Well, they, they usually uh, warm up to me too, but I think their favorite thing is watching the Cobra gunships and the Huey helicopters oh, yeah. on our football. Yeah, <laughs> you and I, we pale in comparison to you know real planes and, and helicopters. So, <laughs> well, but I tried to okay. talk to guys that giving one of the uh, kids a ride, but they can't do that because of uh, insurance requirements and everything. But uh, well, can, let me tell you about. Um, um, and it's a fun thing that did happen to me, and sometimes you never know who you're going to encounter. And um, once at um, a, a senior resident's home in Atlanta, I I just asked when I finished my performance, I said, you know, were any of you Rosie, or did you have stories that you could share? And right off the bat, two ladies spoke up and said, well, we worked at Willow Run. And I said, oh, I know about Willow Run. And, and they told me that they, you know, both were riveters. And then another little lady raised her hand, and she told me that as a chemistry student, she had gotten pegged to work on a project. And she looked at me, she said, honey, have you ever heard of the Manhattan Project? And I said, uh, yes, ma'am. <laughs> and she said, well, I helped do some of the chemical work for that. You know, with and she she told me she was with a whole room full of men. She was the only room, the only woman in the room, and they would often tease her and play tricks on her. But I thought this is amazing. You know, I'm meeting this lady, and then this other lady off to the side was very quiet, and she approached me later on her own, and she said, "Carol, I didn't know if I wanted to come today because the war years were very hard for my family." But I thought you might want to know that I was an assistant decaler and that the girl I worked with who actually put the decals on the plane, she's the one that put the decals on the Enola Gay. Oh, And I went, oh, my goodness, I am right here in this piece of history, this moment, reliving this story with this lady. And um, I was just so honored to be in her presence. But when I said that to her, she said, oh, no, 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 I'm the assistant. I didn't put the decals on, but I helped her. <laughs> so even then she was backing off of, you know, taking credit for the work. So they're amazing ladies. Well, I found out recently that my mother was one of the first ladies in America to see the inside of a B-29 bomber. Wow. Uh, 
Yeah, she was uh, like a rose of the river. She was a supervisor. At a, okay, uh, you know that means it, you could join the American Rose of the Riveter Association and be a rivet. <laughs> oh, yeah. In her honor. Tell, thank you, thank you. Uh, tell folks about what is a rosebud? Well, so a rosebud is a female descendant of a Rosie the Riveter. And that's what I am as a granddaughter to um, a woman who did volunteer work. This, my grandmother was very quick to tell me that hers was all volunteer, but that counts. And that was important. I mean, we had women all over this country and children and everybody in this country that was pitching in by, you know, growing victory gardens or collecting tin cans or uh, newspapers or bacon grease, all those things that were needed for the war. The volunteer effort was important, and so was the paid work, whether it was in defense, plants, or in industry. And so a Rosie is actually the female worker or the female volunteer. And then her descendants, um, if it's a male, he would be a rivet. If it's female, she'd be a rosebud. So I'm a rosebud member in honor of my grandmother. Wow, wow. You say your, your grandfather worked at the... Um the Bell Aircraft. The Bell Aircraft. What aircraft did he work on, do you know? You know, here's the sad thing, Pete. I'm glad you're asking this question. Um, by the time I found out this story, my, nobody in my family really remembered what he did. And uh, that made me so sad because my, grand, my grandfather died when I was very young. And um, I was able to talk to one of my uncles, and he really just told me enough of the story that I knew that my grandfather works there. Now, I romanticize it and say he was a riveter. You know, I'd love it. That'd be a perfect part of the story. But the truth is, I really don't know what my grandfather did at Bell. Uh -huh. um, I, here's what I do know is that he had tried to enlist in the Navy at the same time with his son-in-law. And they both went to the induction center together. And they took my uncle, but my grandfather was just a few months away from turning 37. And he had three young children at home, and they told him, go back home and go to work in a defense plant. So wow. he was not taken into the Navy, but he went to work at Bell. And so, well, you know, he was doing his part a different way. Yeah, that generation, everybody did their job during World War II, didn't they? That's right. Okay. So, do you have All time right. for some amazing statistics, or are we taking a break? Yeah. Uh, we are going to our last break, Carol, right now. Okay. And when we come back, we're going to tell the story of Rachel Ray. Okay? Okay. That sounds good. All right. We'll be right back. Okay. Carol, you ready to do Rachel Ray? I am. So, Rachel okay. Ray was a hand riveter, a group leader, and a mechanic. And this is her story in her words. I was one of the first women hired at Convair. It was consolidated aircraft back then. And I was determined that I wasn't going to lose my job and be sent back to working as a pastry cook. Convair had a motto on their plant which stuck with me. It said, anything short of right is wrong. I went to work in the riveting group in metal bench assembly. Pretty soon I was promoted to bench mechanic work, which was detailed hand riveting. Then I was given a bench with nothing to do but repair what other people had ruined. I loved working at Convair. 
I love the challenge of getting dirty and getting into the work. I did one special riveting job for three months, 10 hours a day, six days a week. Slap three-eighths or three-quarter-inch rivets by hand that no one else would do. You know, Convair was the first time in my life that I had the chance to prove that I could do something, and I did it. They finally made me a group leader, although they didn't pay me the wage that went with the job because I was a woman. The highest paid women at that time were making around 80 cents an hour, but the men were probably making a dollar fifteen to a dollar fifty an hour for identically the same work. I'm Rachel Ray, hand riveter, group leader, and mechanic. God bless Rachel Ray and the rest of the uh, Rosie the Riveter. <laughs> yeah, uh, you, another one uh, of the characters that she says, you know, it's going to take some time, and boy, did it. <laughs> uh, let's go with Barbara DeNike. Tell us about Barbara DeNike. Oh, I love this story about Barbara DeNike because it covers such a... Um, uh, an interesting part of the Rosie story. And, and Pete, when I was making my selection of, of the stories that I wanted to tell, I, I really wanted them to cover the whole picture, you know, the whole spectrum of what was going on with women. And so this one paints a different picture and tells you something that you might not have thought about. Barbara Denike, Filer. My sister and I were living together in Fayetteville, New York, while our husbands were in the service. And we had three babies with us. Stuck in a house with three kids under the age of three, we got quite stir-crazy. There was a factory in Fayetteville, Precision Die Casting Corporation, that was making munitions and asking for people to come to work. So we got the idea of sharing a job between us so that one of us could get out while the other stayed home with the kids. We decided to try it. So we lifted the skills that we both had. We could both type, answer the phones, do filing, things like that. We made our little list, and my sister went over and talked to the personnel lady to see if it would be possible for us to share a job. She said it would be, but the only thing they had open right then was filing. My sister said, fine, we'll be glad to try that. So we took the job. Only it turns out that filing to them meant putting on heavy gloves and knocking a burr off an aluminum casting with a long metal file. Well, this was a surprise to us. It was a very tiring physical job. You'd come home at night totally exhausted with your shoulders aching and your hands covered with blisters. Well, we stuck at it for about three months. Until finally, an efficiency expert came in one day and timed a job my sister was working on. She was taking an aluminum casting, drawing across a piece of sandpaper, and dropping it into a drawer. You had to do it with two hands, and you did it over and over again until your arms were ready to fall off. The efficiency expert timed her for a few minutes, multiplied that to the hour, and set that as the hourly rate for this job. <laughs> it was a ridiculous and unfair rate, completely impossible rate to maintain. So my sister came home that night and said, I have quit our job. 
you can go back if you want to, but I can't stand it. And that was the end of our little defense work. I'm Barbara Denike, Filer. Sort of. <laughs> oh my goodness. What what a what a generation we had, what they went through. I've always considered Absolutely. Yeah, I've always considered, uh, Carol, that we've had six branches of service. Uh the the uh Air Force and the Army, Navy, Marines and the Coast Guard and always included and of course now we have the Space Force. But I always thought that the other two branches of service were the merchant marines because they had the highest casualty rate percentage wise yeah. except for the Marines and then the home front. I don't think people really understand what the home front can do what we have done in the past, and uh, boy, the, the Rose the River gener- generation is passing so quickly, uh, and you are doing such an outstanding job preserving their history, and I want to thank you for that. What about the Rose the River image uh, now? How's it being used in modern times? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that, but you know what? I'm actually going to back up one thing and just throw this in really fast because the American Rosie the Riveter Association on their website places these statistics, and I just think it's too incredible not to share with you. But these women united to build 80,000 landing craft, 100,000 tanks, just as many ships, 300,000 aircraft, 370,000 artillery pieces, 15 million guns and 41 billion rounds of ammunition. Wow. So, yeah, they were an important part of, of the war effort, and I'm glad you recognized that. Thank you. Of course, we see the image everywhere. Um, now, I mean, I have political buttons with Rosie the Riveter on it for candidates on every party, you know, from every party and every side. Um, you see posters. We know this image has now been used for um, to to push um, women's effort, uh, um, women's liberation, so to speak. We know there are two very famous images. One is the J. Howard Miller, We Can Do It, which, by the way, was never called Rosie the Riveter when he first painted it. Um, it was done strictly for the Westinghouse Corporation and, and meant to encourage women and men on time to work. And then the other image is the one that Norman Rockwell created for the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. Of course, this is a little more licensed. So we don't see it as much as we do the other rosy image, but the Westinghouse image, you see it on everything. And trust me, I have it. Dolls, magnets, shirts, hats, uh, tablecloths, you name it, I got that rosy image. But the idea is still that story behind it. We can do it. And that's not just women. That's all of us. We can do it. And that might be getting through COVID. We can do it. In fact, I have a mask that has that on the front. <laughs> yes, ma'am, we can do it. We've done it before and we'll do it again. There is a Rosie the Riveter Memorial in California, is there not? Yes. Um, it's on my bucket list. The American Rosie the Riveter Association had their convention out there a few years ago, and I was trying my best to figure out how to be there, but the trouble was I had to be on the other coast, um, all on the Outer Banks of North Carolina for a different event, and I couldn't figure out how to be at one and then get to the other. <laughs> and so I had to miss it, but I'm going to get out there one day, and I'm going to go there. And if you go there, 
you will meet real Rosies who stay out there every day telling their stories as part of the, the memorial. <laughs> Outstanding. Okay, we only have a couple minutes left, Carol, but uh, can you very briefly tell us about Inez Sawyer? Oh, I'd love to tell you about Inez Sawyer. How many minutes do I have so I'll know not to go over? You have about one. That's good. So if you can get in two minutes, tell us the story okay. about Inez. I can do it. Inez was the chief clerk of the tool room. Here she goes. I was 31 when the war started, and I had never worked in my life before. I had a six-year-old daughter and two boys, and we were living in Norwalk, Ohio, in a large home in which we could fit about 200 people playing bridge. Sometimes we filled it. Before the war, that was my life, bridge and golf and clubs and children. But when the war broke out, my husband's rubber matting business had to close due to war restrictions on rubber. And then we lost our live-in maid, and I could see that there was no way I could possibly live the life I was accustomed to living. So I took my children home to my parents in Seattle. And those Seattle papers were full of ads looking for women workers. Women needed to help the war effort. Those ads would say, do your part. Free a man for service. Well, I was a DAR, and I wanted to do my part for the war effort. And I could have worked for the Red Cross and rolled bandages, but I wanted to do something that I thought was really vital. Building bombers was vital. <laughs> so I took a job at Boeing, which horrified my mother. She said, no one in our family has ever worked in a plant before. My father thought that I would know what I was doing and that I would never get along with the people there. And my husband laughed because I didn't know anything about uh, saving and earning my own money. But I took the job at Boeing. I went to work in the tool room, and I was completely baffled because the only tool I'd ever handled in my life was a hammer. So the first day on the job, I had quite a few difficulties. And finally, I went to my supervisor and said, can I have something to read? Well, this was an unheard of request. But you know... He brought me a manual on how to build the B-17 bomber, and I studied it. I learned what every tool was called and what every machine did, and pretty soon I was promoted to chief clerk of the tool room, the first female <laughs> chief clerk they'd ever had. My name is Ida Sawyer. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, folks, we're running out of time. Carol, thank you so much. My and pleasure. You'll be interested next week. Uh, Rachel Torrance is my guest. She served as a donut dolly in Vietnam. Oh, yay! I love yeah. it. Okay, and folks, thanks, uh, thanks for bearing with us on, on the little technical difficulties today. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.